My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. This is the second instalment in a two-part interview looking at the in-depth exploits of a group of angling friends known as the Essex Boys, and in particular, Dave Hawkeswood and Paul Maris, with Paul again linking up with me here today. Last time we looked at your exploits with the big fish potential in UK waters. This time we're going to widen the search to anywhere on the planet that's worth visiting to get the right result, and in particular, two specific pursuits, the Marlin World Cup and the Billfish Royal Slam. As with a lot of people, the finances necessary to fund the type of fishing we're going to talk about here tend to become more readily available as you pass middle age. And again, in common with most of us, getting that first taste of fishing in foreign waters for you came in quite a modest way during a family sunshine holiday, which in your case was to Spain. We've all done it. You take a walk down the harbour and you see the boats lined up with their 18130 outfits strategically placed in the rod holders, there to entice holidaymakers in, backed up at the booking kiosk by faded marlin photographs taken who knows when. Obviously, some good fish are occasionally caught around the coast of Europe, but actual results tend to become less important to these boat operators, as most are tapping into the casual holiday trade, which in the main won't be coming back anyway. That said... For some of us, both myself and you included, regardless of failure, this is the all-important launching pad to greater things, and particularly in your case as we're going to see. So give us an insight now into how your big game fishing started and initially went. Well, basically, I mean, it was like really my wreck fishing in the UK. It all started with holidays. We started going abroad probably in the early to mid-70s and got a bit more adventurous as we went on, but, I mean, most of it was sort of in the med, with Spain, Portugal, and the Balearic Islands. Although they're not the best game-fishing places in the world, you did get to see the odd game-fish boat, and obviously they look very impressive with all the setups and the big reels and what have you, and they've all got their little photo or their pictures of these big fish that they've been catching. I had a little dabble with them, with very little success then, so it never really inspired me to sort of go that step further. But I had the taste, and that's where it started. And then, basically, um, our holidays got a bit more um, adventurous. And we started going to the Caribbean, which, that there, I mean, it was, well, it was a different ball game out there. I think we were the first two times we went out there, went to St. Lucia. I think in the duration of the two trips, which the time scale was about two weeks at a time, I think I managed three days fishing out of St Lucia. I chartered the boat myself. I mean, back then it wasn't sort of silly money, so I could afford to do it. And uh, I can remember, that I can't remember the name of the boat, but the name of the skipper, or it might have been his pet name, was Mako, which I thought was very appropriate. And we didn't see anything like a marlin or anything that big, but certainly got beat up with what I still call toothy critters, kingfish, wahoo, barracuda, stuff like that. Yeah, that was sort of the start of the learning curve, if you like to put it that way. I mean, I I was very green at the gills. The type of fishing that you was shown out there was totally alienated to what we was used in the UK because, I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, you're trolling what I call pulling plastic, basically, but you're trolling lures and you do spend many hours. I mean, it is a sort of very hit and miss, very frustrating type of fishing. It's not my favourite type of fishing. It never will be. Not that sort, but... um. Yeah, I mean, when you do get a hit, I mean, it's an adrenaline rush. I mean, the line screams out and they're shouting and hollering and all that. It's spectacular. It's explosive, really. And that got me going. I remember the best trip we had back in those times was we had a trip out of 
of Antigua. I can't remember the name of the skipper this time, but the boat was called Obsession, which I thought was a lovely name for a charter boat, Obsession, because I think that's what most of us are that are keen as mustard with our fishing. It's obsessive, and it was a good name. It was only Sid and myself, Sid Smith, who's one of the original Essex boys. We was out there with our wives, so we had a couple of days fishing out with Obsession. Actually, we had three days, and it was, well, it was fantastic. It was all Wahoo. We didn't see anything else but Wahoo. But over the three days, we averaged 25 Wahoo a day. And this was mainly fish between 20 and 50 pound, which was great fun. Unfortunately, we were fishing with 50 pound class gear. And to be honest, that was a little bit OTT. I mean, it's much more fun fishing for Wahoo and stuff like that with 20 to 30 pound gear. But back then, we had sort of game gear. So basically, we were just going for a holiday with families and trying to sneak the odd days fishing in. So we relied on the tackle that was on the boat. So, um, you know, it wasn't always top quality gear, but most of the times it was certainly serviceable. But that sort of got us going, really, um, with the holidays. I mean, thinking back then, back in the sort of late 70s, mid 80s, that type period, fishing in the UK is probably the most, well, I should say there's more people involved in fishing than there are in any other sport in the country. But unfortunately, the media, i.e. television and what have you, there's very little coverage of fishing. So um, you're a bit limited to what you can see, especially anything abroad. I mean, it was practically unheard of. You did hear the odd story of stuff, what was being caught, but um, there was no one at the time doing anything in depth regarding abroad. It was all in the UK, and there was very little coverage of that. So, um, as I said, all our fishing back then was all down to the odd holiday here and there, but nothing really serious. So you've got the taste and you know there's lots of good big fish holding venues dotted all around the world. But also, lots of mediocre and even bad ones. The problem is that in cost terms, the difference between a potential good result and an almost certain failure is negligible. It all comes down to doing your homework and making sure you end up where you need to be and at the appropriate time. Well, to be honest Phil, really it developed from about... I would think from from holidays, well, I mean, we started going to Mauritius, well, which I'm going to come to. The first year we went there was in 2002. And to be honest, it wasn't until about 2003 and 2004 that I got together with Dave Hawks when we had a good discussion of what we were doing. We weren't getting anywhere. We weren't doing very well. And it was then that we sort of decided to go to the expense of um, purchasing our own gear looking into it in depth, asking... I mean, basically, we got to know people that was involved in game fishing, and basically, we was asking lots of questions. I mean, during the duration of sort of going... thinking back in the 80s, mid-90s and what have you, obviously, computers come along. Then the world became a lot smaller. People started going different places. I'm going to come to this later with what's on the TV now, the Jeremy Wade of this world, where they're going and what they can do. It really developed because, as I said, going back, I really need to go back to sort of the mid to late 90s where we first saw over the Christmas holiday period Sky Sports put on a, a show of the Marlin World Cup, which was based in Mauritius. And we sat there and watched it on a, well, I think it was probably the first one or two days in the new year on a TV. And, I mean, you saw this fabulous-looking island, beautiful blue waters, lots of celebrities, Barry Hearn and Keith Arthur and what have you. Something like 40 teams, 40 boats going out there on a shotgun start. It looked absolutely fabulous. 
I know Dave watched it at the same time as I did, and a few days after I met him and I said, well, what do you think of that? He said, we've got to do it. Let's do it. Let's give it a crack. So we made inquiries. Well, Dave's daughter actually did it. She got on the internet and contacted him and asked if there was any chance that we could get involved and what have you. Unfortunately then, it was such a popular thing. I'm going back in uh, probably about 1997, 1998, something like that, maybe 99. The thing was, there was a waiting list. All we could do was put our names down and just wait, basically. So it was like an annual phone call, i.e., could we get in? No. Our thoughts were that it wasn't going to happen, but we watched it each year, and it's just something that we passionately wanted to do. And lo and behold, in the year 2000, Lisa, Dave's daughter, she contacted him, unbeknown to us, and said it was her dad's big birthday coming up, and she wanted to treat him to a birthday, and nothing would be better than um, to take part in the Marlin World Cup in Mauritius. Anyway, fortunately enough, we got in. So our first year we fished it was in 2001. Three of the original Essex boys went out there, that's Sid Smith, myself and Dave Hawksward, obviously took our wives, which was a lovely thing for them, because, it, it, well, it was just paradise. Where we stayed, which was at La Pirogue, like a five-star hotel, all the accommodation was superb. The time couldn't come round. Once we knew we was going, all of us really excited just to be part of it. Little did we know at the time, we was going to be shot down in flames, because, I mean, all, as far as we was concerned, we was three experienced anglers, and a lot of them, the people we saw on these programmes, weren't really proper anglers, and we thought, basically, we was going to go out there and do the business. <laughs> well, that didn't happen, but I'll come to that in a minute. But basically, yeah, we went out there um, in 2001, I think it was sort of December time. Couldn't believe how hot it was. Got there and, of course, Sky Sports involved and the cameras and what have you. I mean, it was such a buzz. It really was. I mean, we're really up for it. The night prior to the actual event, they had a captain's presentation evening and what have you. Draw of the boats and all that. And as I said, the cameras were there and there's a buzz and music and entertainment and God knows what. It really was big. You've got to bear in mind, I think there was 37 to 40 teams. So there's probably about 150 anglers, plus their wives and what have you. So there was a lot of people involved. It was a big event. So um, this particular time, the actual competition was run over a period of five days, and this was five days back to back. These days were long. I mean, you was getting woken up at five to quarter past five in the morning, having a breakfast at half past five, and then a taxi would pick you up at the hotel, take you down to the Morn Anglers Club, where it was run from, out of the Black River, and then you was called up on your boats, obviously one jetty, so basically it took quite a while for 30-odd boats or 40 boats pick up all their parties, so um, it was well organised, but it was quite a thing to do. Anyway, once they're out there, they're all more or less lined up, and uh, you get the shotgun start, and it literally is a shotgun start with a 12-bore gun. Then all the boats, and these are all fast game boats, they just, well, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, to start with, we all had cameras and camcorders and what have you, taking photographs. To be honest, when you start in a crowd like that of boats, flotilla like that of boats, you couldn't stand up. I mean, as much as you could do to hold on. But it was such an adrenaline rush. It was fantastic. The one big thing in the advantage of Mauritius is the drop-off is so near to the actual island. You can literally go half a mile outside the river and you're fishing in deep water. So basically, you could catch a mile in within 10 to 15 minutes of actually starting. So anyway, as I said, the previous night we draw our five boats because you have a different boat each day. You're not fishing the same boat. And bearing in mind we were really green at this. This was a, a learning curve for all three of us, basically. Anyway, we got on our boat full of confidence, what have you. 
and off we went. These were long days. As I said, we was up at five. The actual start was seven o'clock in the morning. You fished in, and it was lines in at 4.30. One of the rules were that if anybody had got a hook up prior to the um, lines in, they had a certain, they were sort of designated time to land the fish. But every time there was a strike, the skipper would call up to the, um, the clubhouse and then if he got into the fight, he would tell them who the angler was, what class he was fishing on, because there were three classes we were using. It was 50 pound, 80 pound, and 130 pound. It's a point system. Obviously, the lighter the line, the more points. So, I mean, basically, this is the option you've got, but this is a chance you take. You fish 50 pound line, you're going to get twice as many points as what you are with 130, but obviously your chances are less of landing the fish, but that's the chance you take. But we decided to go for 50s to take the chance anyway. And um, as I said, we're coming at five, and then you've got cocktails and the weigh-in and what have you, photographs and all that. By the time you get back to the hotel, it's like quarter seven. Then you've got to have a shower. Then you've got to go out and eat, and the evening's entertainment. So by the time five days comes along, I'll tell you what, it's as much as you could take. I, I, I remember talking to Keith Arthur. And I was saying, yeah, what a buzz and all that. He said, you wait, he said, you wait until f- the fifth day. He said, You'll, you know, there'll be teams going out there with only half their teams. He said, not everybody can do it five days on the trot. And having done it, I realised what he meant. But um, no, our first trip, first year, we, we had a disaster. Well, I mean, we didn't score a point. Each day we went out there. We had a few takes, saw a few marlin. But it was a disaster. I mean, after five days fishing, the Essex boys, because this was the other thing I should have mentioned earlier, prior to us going out there, we had to have a given name. Each team has a name. So Dave asked me what name should we have, and I said, we're Essex boys. I said, it's got to be Essex boys. So that's what we were. We went out as Essex boys, and I remember when we was called up, Barry Earn coming over to me and said, you've got a name like Essex boys. He said, I hope you're going to behave yourself, he said, because we come from Essex. I said, I know that. I said, don't worry about that. I said, we're all turtles, we're all coof. We'll be all right. We'll keep the flags flying. So we, we did that, but um, unfortunately we didn't score any points. But to be honest, it didn't deter us, because what we saw caught, the whole thing was such a, an adrenaline rush. The wives loved every minute of it. Presentation night at the end, a big gala, dinner and what have you. And the dignitaries are there for the island. It was a big event. I've never fished anything quite like that. Well, yes, we were all disappointed, but um, it didn't deter us. We were determined to do it again the following year. And that's what we did, basically. Sid came out with us again. We did bring another guy with us. Unfortunately, it was the same result. So basically, with the first two years competition in the Marlin World Cup for the Essex boys, it was an absolute disaster. We never scored a point. You know, we tried different things. We fished different boats. I mean, this is the other thing. In a way, it was a learning curve. When you fish different boats, they've got different methods, different patterns. I mean, obviously, the bigger the boat, the more rods they can put out. All the game boats fish with outriggers. An outrigger is like a long arm which they put out. And basically, what it does on the spread... It gives them width, so they can put two lines out, one either side of the boat on an outrigger, which is wide. The normal one is five rods, and then you've got two flat line rods, which are shorter. And So if you can envisage a W, the outriggers are the points. You've got the W, which is the, the lower part of the W, and then the shotgun, which is the one that goes right up the middle, which goes normally further back. That's the point. So the favoured one really is the W formation, and to be honest, that's worked for us as well as any. Some of the smaller boats fish with four rods. That can be just as successful. 
obviously it's like our jellies in the UK. We're fishing with plastic lures and the colours, I mean, there's an array of colours and obviously everybody's got their favourite colour, just like they are in the UK. On given days, I'll be honest with you, I've seen fish caught on just about every colour imaginable. Like in the UK at the moment, it's all rhubarb and custard. Well, there was a couple of years there that it was all the dark colours, purples and blacks. That was very successful. And then another year had come along and it'd be a lighter colour. So we learned and what we did gradually, we started purchasing our own lures. So we did have a bit of tackle. As I said, really, although we failed miserably, it didn't deter us. To be honest, it had the reverse effect. I mean, it just wanted us to try harder and we was determined that we was going to break our duck, basically. So two years went, nothing, absolutely zilch. This is 10 days on a boat, 10 hour days, so that's 100 hours fishing and we haven't caught a billfish. 2003, we was all up and running and things were going, booked at whatever. For some reason, I can't remember what it was, but 2003, it was cancelled, fairly at the last minute. Sid told us that he couldn't afford to go to Mauritius the following year. So I had a chat with Dave and I said, I think really we need to invest in our own gear. What we did, we went out and purchased four um, Penn International game rods, 50 pound class rods, all rollered. And also I bought four Penn International two speed 50 pound class reels, which was quite an expense. By then I'd started going on the internet and looking and what have you. And I come across a company called Peter Pakula, which operated out of Australia. So I sent them an email and told them that we were fishing Mauritius, what our target fish were, the gear we had, and I was open to suggestions with lures and what have you. Also, I'd read about their teasers. They did one or two teasers, but the ones I was interested in was the ones they called a witch doctor teaser, which is really mirrors. It's on a hard bit of wood, and you trail about 25 to 30 feet out the back of the boat, and they just attract the fish. So did no more, basically, ordered two of the teasers, and I can't remember how many lures, but I think we invested from them somewhere between eight and nine hundred pound. So this was ready for 2004, and we took all this out with us, which is a bit of a pain, to be honest. That's the one thing I didn't enjoy, was taking tackle abroad. I mean, it's cumbersome at the best of times, but um, we did that. To be honest, when we got out there, we were so fed up with it, we left it out there because we knew we was going to go out there on an annual basis. So we left their rods and reels, and it's still out there, to be honest. As I said, 2001, 2002, nothing. 2003 was cancelled. So we come to 2004, which was their third year. And the, I think the second day I caught a spearfish. Well, out of the billfish, the spearfish is the smallest one of the lot. I mean, you're, you're talking of a fish somewhere between 20 and up to maybe 50, 60 pound. But they are a beautiful fish, absolutely beautiful fish. When I hooked it and reeled it in, I saw this. I didn't even know it was a billfish. I thought it was a wahoo. But when the guy brought it on the boat and unhooked it, and I stood there to take a photograph of it to put it back, he said something to me that sort of stuck. He said to me, he said, you've caught the hard one there. So I said, what do you mean by the hard one? He said, well, I've got guys that are game fishermen that have been fishing for years trying to catch a spearfish and they've never caught one. I said, all right, okay. So I said, what's special about that? And he said, well... This was the other thing we was doing. What, fishing competitions of this nature, the rules that you use is the IGFA rules. I won't go into all of them in detail, but basically it's line class, and this is the other thing they was doing as well. If you catch a billfish, which we did the, the following year, a proper one, marlin, they test the line for you. I don't know if anybody's ever seen them, how they line test. 
but it's quite an interesting thing. It's done on rollers. Say, for example, you catch a two or three hundred pound marlin on one of your rods. What you do when you come in, you take about 25 to 30 foot of your line, which you actually use in your main line. You take it to them, the organisers, and what they do, they take, well, they took it out the back, and it's done on two rollers, basically, with little wheels on them. And it's sort of set up with um, a gauge for weight. It's all done under tension. Obviously, they can't put knots in it, because that would be a weakness. It grips the line, these two rollers, one either side, and you just put tension on it. As the tension builds up, you get a readout of what weight, we was fishing with 50 pound line and it broke at 44 pounds so obviously it was eligible so that counted but that was interesting that's something we'd never seen before and also with IGFA and the main rule is that no one is allowed to touch your tackle i.e. when you fish I mean they can put the rods out for you you can set the spread up and all that but if there's a take you have to pick your rod out the holder put yourself into the chair obviously set the hook and fight the fish without any assistance whatsoever apart from when they grab the leader and either tag and release or whatever they want to do but other than that no one's allowed to touch the rod and reel only you which suits me down to the ground to be honest because I've been out on other boats where they like to hook the fish and all that well I won't let them do that and that's part of the fun as far as I'm concerned whether you lose it or not I want to do it all when that rod goes over I want to be the first one there and some of them, especially other countries we've been to when they can't speak English, you have a job to put it across, but I just shout, I igfa at them, and they seem to know what I'm talking about, so they leave the rod alone, which is good. So anyway, going back to this spearfish, I said to the guy, I said, well, what are they after a spearfish for? He said, well, it's igfa, they do royal slams, there's various things, what they do, trophies and stuff, what you're up for, what they call slams, a boat slam, catching like maybe three um, different types of uh, billfish in a day, and all there's all sorts of slams. There's a shark slam and all sorts of things. Then he told me that there's nine billfish around the world, which quite a few people, it's their target to catch all nine fish. When I looked into it, and I got the um, IGFA annual book of world records and what have you, at the time when I eventually did it, there was only 69 people in the world that had actually done it. So when I looked into it, I found out that basically the nine are a spearfish, white marlin, striped marlin, broadbill, blue marlin Atlantic, blue marlin Pacific, sailfish Atlantic, sailfish Pacific, and black marlin. So I'd caught this, it still never really meant a great deal to me, but I'd caught a sailfish and I'd obviously caught a striped marlin, but never thought much about it. Anyway, we went through 2004. We still hadn't caught a marlin, not a proper marlin. The spearfish I didn't cast as a marlin, although it's part of the family. It was so small, it was only about 25 pounds. And it basically, it wasn't until the year 2005. By then, we'd fished 15 days. That's 150 hours of no marlin. So, although we were a bit distraught and a bit deflated, in a way, it made us want to try that much more. There was no way we was going to give up. And little did we know that when we went out in 2005... What a difference, what a transformation by buying this tackle, learning a lot, asking lots of questions, also getting friendly with a, a guy called Christian Lagorn and his son, who came out with, with us, which helped considerably, because it was his backyard, he knew where to go. He could also speak French, which is the main language out in Mauritius, so he could speak to the crew on their language and on their terms, and he knew what to do, and that gave us such an edge. There was no two ways about that. Anyway, so we went back out in 2005. Unfortunately, in 2004, Sky Sports pulled out uh, for I don't know what reasons, but they pulled out. So did Barry Hearn and Keith Arthur. 
when we got there in 2005, there was no cameras, which was disappointing because, I mean, that did give it the edge and all that. There wasn't so many teams. There was only going from about 37 teams. There was down to, I think it was about 25 in 2005. But anyway, we went out there, not as confident as we were, but determined, let's put it that way. The first day we caught our first marlin, which was, I can't even remember who called it, whether it was, I think, no, it was Dave, that's right, Dave caught the marlin, blue marlin, wasn't the biggest one in the world, but it didn't matter, size didn't matter, it was points on the board, and after day one, would you believe, and from being bottom for two years, or three, you know, two years, we was top of the leaderboard, because that was the only marlin actually tagged and released that day, which was good. Went out the second day, I caught a sailfish, and I think I had a wahoo, Oh yeah, this is the other thing I should have mentioned. They what they do did they decided instead of doing five days, they went for four days. And instead of doing four days all in one go, they did two days on, a break, and then another two days. And that was good. That really did that day break was good. You needed that. So the duration was still over five days, but we only fished four. Anyway, lo and behold, we won it. I think we only had the one mile in a sailfish, I think there was a wahoo. And there might have been a couple of Dorado. It wasn't a big catch. It was hard fishing, basically. It was a, there was fish lost. I know we lost a couple one day. But um, anyway, we won it. And that's all that mattered. And it was, well, it was the highlight of our angling career, the pair of us. It was just fantastic. That night, I should never forget that as long as I live. It was something else. And it was great for the girls as well. They enjoyed every minute of it. So we was on a high. We won the Marlin World Cup, made the papers and what have you. So... Uh, we was all raring to go for the following year. And we went back. Uh, we didn't, we should have gone back in December 2006, but they moved it. They decided to go to do it in February, March time, which is more into the season. Give us a better edge of catching other species as well. So we didn't fish until February of 2007. And we won it again. I mean, it was good winning it one time, but to win it back-to-back, it was only other one other person that won it back-to-back, and that was Z Gregory, who we got to know out there, which I always classed as a lovable lunatic. That man is so passionate and OTT, you've got to see him to believe him. Quite a few of the teams that have been teams that have been going out there year after year, who we got to know well. Literally, there was a family atmosphere. The actual organisers and the people in the Le Mans Anglers Club, they couldn't be more helpful. I mean, they really are lovely people. And it was just lovely to go back to see them all, you know, and it was a good buzz. And by now, the name Essex boys were getting quite synonymous to the Marlin World Cup then. We would go in taxi sometime, and the taxi drivers had heard of the Essex boys, so we had more fame in Mauritius than we did in the UK. So it, it started to mean something. Also, it got in the national papers and what have you. So it was something else. During that year of 2005, I got to know a guy called Peter Petzer, which run worldwide fishing safaris. I think this was done by Jim Whitby, who was an editor at the time of Boat Fishing Monthly. He had gone out to Kenya to fish a competition run by Peter Petzer's company. And there was like 20 or 30 teams, and they had a fantastic trip. Uh, there was loads of pictures, two or three page feature of uh, lots of sailfish and all sorts of things, sharks and God knows what, tuna and what have you. Really looked good. Somewhere different because by then I'd started really getting into it then. I mean, confidence was up. We'd won two major titles and we just wanted to do more. Unfortunate for Dave, um, myself being retired, he's busy work, 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 so he can't spare the time as much as I could. But Sid Smith, he got involved. He was quite prepared to try something different. So I contacted Peter Petzer. I had a good chat with him. 
and found out that the next competition was the following um, November, December. Their base was Hemingways, which is a hotel just outside Malindi, Watamu. It wasn't cheap, but um, as far as we're concerned, it was another holiday and a trip of a lifetime, so we was really up for it. The four of us booked, husbands and wives, two of us fishing and the ladies just enjoying themselves, so we booked it up. Got out there, it was a bit of a trek to get out there. I met up with the crowd, it was a good buzz. Met with Peter and the, his partner in crime at the time was a guy called Jim Midgley, who I keep in contact with, and we still have a good laugh and a joke and the odd pint here and there. And really enjoyed the whole setup. Fished the competition. I forget how many days we fished now, but you had different boats and what have you. Great fun. Really was lots of sailfish. I think Sid and I had somewhere in the region 18 or 20 sailfish and other bits and pieces. We was getting them. Um, oh, this was a, the other thing I had in the introduction, the GTs. What a fantastic fish they are. This was the other thing. We did notice this now. We'd been to three or four places, and every place we went, they fished differently. They've got their own setups and what have you. Here we was fishing with smaller lures, but they put what they call belly strips of um, Dorado or something like that, and fishing smaller lures mainly for the sailfish. But obviously with bait on the hook, there's always a chance of catching something else. So we was getting Wahoo, Kingfish, Dorado... We put a downrigger as well. This was the first introduction we had for downrigging. Putting a, uh, a bait like a four or a six pound ball lead, dropping your bait down. Uh, it's on a clip, on an elastic clip. Basically, when you get a take, it just pulls out and then you're free lining. You've got no weight. You've just got the weight of the fish to play. And they're putting a bait down at 50 feet so you, you catch all sorts of stuff. This was the other thing we had was shark as well. <laughs> I'll go into that in a minute. But the GTs, I could not believe the power of these things. I mean, we was fishing again with 30 to 50 pound gear, mainly 50. Well, I mean, the biggest one I had the first time I went out, there was a 90 pound, I think it was. And I've never seen anything like it. It just beat me up, absolutely. I was that exhausted. The photograph I've got of it, the deckhand was lifting the fish because I just didn't have enough energy to lift the fish after I thought it. That beat me up good and proper. We ended up, we went out there four times with Peter. You never knew what you was going to get. I mean, this was the difference between Kenya and Mauritius. Mauritius, it was nearly all marlin. Whereas Kenya, whatever you was fighting, there was going to be something out there bigger that was going to come along and get it, or bite it in half and what have you. The other thing we caught a lot of out there was tiger shark. Massive things. Yellowfin tuna, I think the biggest we saw that was caught out there, I think Dave Barham caught it was a 200-pound yellowfin tuna, which at the time was the biggest tuna we'd ever seen. It was fantastic. So all the time, your international big fish list is growing, and it's now starting to contain more billfish species. At what point, then, did the thoughts of doing a billfish royal slam come into the reckoning, and how did you look to progress it? Well, really, it stemmed from Kenya, because, as I said, Peter Petzer, he's a South African, and he's done a lot of game fishing around the world. And what he doesn't know about game fishing, well, it is neither here nor there, but he got so many places, so many contacts, he, he obviously, worldwide fishing safaris, he goes to different venues. So I mentioned about this and I said to him, obviously I want to edge me bets and, you know, I'm looking for other stuff. Up until then I'd had a striped marlin, a spearfish and a, a Pacific sailfish. So I said, I was desperate obviously to get a marlin with a chance of a white marlin and what have you. And he said to me, he said, well, this was year, I think it was a year 2007 when I was had a good chat with him. And he said, well, I'm organising a trip to Venezuela in 2008, February 2008. He said, it's all guys. It's not the best place in the world to go. It's a place you don't take your wives. There's a small setup. 
He said, I only take about 16 top whack 20 people. He said, we have the whole hotel to ourselves, but it's all inclusive. But the fishing is all we're going out there for is the fishing. He said, I can guarantee it's fantastic. So anyway, he talked us into it. It didn't take a lot of talking into. It's somewhere we'd never been. So he set the whole package up. He did a lot. Organised the flights, everything. Had people meet us at the airport in Caracas. That's where we flew into. He met us at Heathrow. So he'd done the lot. And lo and behold, we got there. There were 16 of us. I think we had six boats we was chartering at the time, which it was all booked. I think we fished five, maybe six days. Weren't a competition. The thing was, I remember now, just on the top of my head, up until that, we'd just been out to um, Mauritius. We had two holidays back to back. We did the Mauritius in 2008, and uh, I'd caught a blue marlin. That's right, that was on the 14th of February. I had a blue, I had my first blue marlin. And literally, this holiday we had in Venezuela was like the following week. So we was back about three days, so it was a complete turnaround for me. Not some, not anybody else. Sid was not a problem, but for me, I'm from one holiday to the second. And while I was out in Mauritius, I didn't feel very well at all. I felt really lousy. Took the normal stuff, but nothing seemed to have an effect, So, but I, I didn't feel too well at all. Came home, didn't have time to go to the doctors or anything. I was just taking tablets and what have you. Nothing really was having much effect. I got out to Venezuela, and I felt, basically I felt lousy. I really did. Everything was an effort. They was having a great time, all the rest of the boys there. I was going to bed at 8 o'clock at night. I just couldn't keep my head up. I was just, my head was thumping. Didn't realise at the time. When I got back, I did go to the doctor. I had a viral infection. Something that if I'd have any antibiotics would have sorted it out, but obviously I didn't. But in a way, it took the edge off the holiday. But what we caught, it was just amazing. I've got it written down in front of me. In I had the 23rd of February, I had a, an Atlantic Blue. The 26th of February, I had a white marlin and a swordfish. And the 27th of February, I had an Atlantic sailfish. So in three days, I caught four species, what I wanted. I'll never forget the swordfish, because we tried catching swordfish in Mauritius. And mainly they catch these at night. And what they use is, well, mainly squid for bait, or small baits. And they put um, these, what we call make and break, these lights in the water. And that attracts the the, um, the fish, but they they fish like fifty to a hundred feet deep for them in deep water. But when we fished from Broadbill out in um, Venezuela, it was in the daytime. Not thinking what depths we were going to be fishing. Well, it was phenomenal. I, I forget the actual depth, but it was well over a thousand feet. It was something like sixteen hundred to eighteen hundred feet depth for these things. Very simple, rotten bottom, lump of concrete on it. Very crude, big baits, big hooks, but. Um, it was fantastic fish. I mean, pound for pound, I think the swordfish is probably the hardest fighting billfish out of all of them. I mean, you know when you've got them on. But the thing is, what is at your disadvantage is it's deep. It's straight down. So the smaller you're back, I mean, you go through the pain barrier again. Whereas most of your marlin fishing is on the surface or fairly shallow and you're fishing away from the boat and the boat's doing quite a bit of the work because they're chasing the fish or following the fish. Whereas this method, you're straight down. So you've got to pull the fish to the boat. So it is tiring. But basically, as I said, in three days, I had four of the species. So up until then, I'd got eight out of the nine species. Pete was out there with us all the time. And I said to him, I said, well, I can't believe what I've done. This year alone, I've had five of the species now. The blue marlin in Mauritius and the other four in Venezuela. All I want is a black marlin. So um, I said, right, if you had one place to go, where would be your first choice to go for a black marlin? 
And he said, well, you realise that nothing's guaranteed. He said, but the top place in the world is Tropic Star Lodge in Panama. So um, I did no more. I said to him, right, can you sort things out for us? Sid was keen to do it. So we went out there in February 2009. What a fabulous setup! Not cheap. One of the most expensive holidays I've ever had. I can't mean the total cost, but it was not cheap. But the setup was fabulous. Absolutely first star. The whole, well, you didn't need to take tackle. I mean, it's all top quality gear. At the time, they had a fleet of 15 31-foot Bertrams, all identical boats, top quality skippers. Although it's a lodge, you have to fly in by plane. The only two ways to get into the lodge is by plane. They've cut out a little strip in the jungle, or by boat. The nearest roads are 130 miles away. And the big, big advantage they have, there's no commercial fishing there whatsoever, and there's no one else fishing there whatsoever. So the whole area where they're fishing, it's just their boats, basically. All the stuff what they're doing is tag and release. I know they bring the odd snapper in to eat, but none, none of the billfish, obviously. It's all release stuff. So they're just reaping the benefits of it. There's two reefs there, but the famous one is what they call the Zane Grain Reef. That's the favourite spot. But the thing they do here is most of the time they live bait for marlin. You catch mainly skipjack or something like that, small tuna, and all you're doing, you put two rods out. Basically, as soon as you catch your bait, you put your rods out because the marlin are on the reef where the bait is. That's what they're coming up for. The week we were out there, there was 12 boats operating full-time out of the 15. And the first morning, within a half an hour, I think there was four boats around us fighting a marlin. And they were jumping about. I mean, it was spectacular. Just praying it was going to get a marlin. But, um, well, it came to midday on the first day, and we hadn't had a take. And basically what he'd done by about, after about two hours, we started fishing. I think we left the quayside about half past six, and so we were fishing by seven. By about nine, half past nine, we hadn't had a take in on the hot spot. So basically we just slowly trolled off, and we was, I don't know, probably five or six, maybe seven miles from the actual mark. And it come to about 12 o'clock, and we sort of relaxed a bit, and we was having a few beers and what have you. And all of a sudden, Sid's rod went off. Well, at the time, Sid couldn't get into the habit of not striking, so he took his rod out of the rest and made the fatal mistake of, although he counted as a six, he pumped into it and he he lost it, he dropped it. Well, that was a big advantage for me, because basically this fish was a really aggressive marlin, and it, it didn't frighten me off at all, it just come across and just took my live bait. So then I had the opportunity, and uh, luckily I did everything right, and I hooked into it. Well, when this thing felt the hook... She jumped out of the water. This must have been about 80 to 100 yards out of the back of the boat. And that fish then was the biggest marlin I'd ever seen in my life. This massive thing come out of the water, about 10 foot, jumped out, shook his head, and crashed into the water. And I can remember the deckhand screaming, Senor, Senor, you have a very big black marlin on there. And all I kept thinking was, don't get off. Don't lose it. Don't get off. This was the fish I wanted. This was, as far as I was concerned, not only was the biggest fish I'd ever had, it was a fish of a lifetime. And it was the species. I mean, it was everything I wanted in a fish. And I just, all the time, I could, don't get off, because bearing in mind, I'm only fishing with 50-pound class gear, so the odds really are on the fish. And I mean, this was a big marlin. At the time, we didn't realise how big it was, but we found that out when it got closer to the boat. Basically, it took me 55 minutes to bring it in. He leaded it about three or four times, but it was so green, so powerful, he just couldn't hold on to it, so he let it go again. And I kept playing it, although it counts with the IGFA rules. As soon as the guys actually touch the leader, it does count as a, a released fish. But I obviously wanted to get it to the side of the boat, which luckily I managed to do. And when we saw the size of it lay to the boat, I mean, it was huge. He said it was a big 700. He said between 700 and 800. So we split it down the middle, it was 750. 
I mean, there's no way I was going to kill that fish to find it. I'd love to know what it weighed, but it was just no way in the world I would have killed a fish like that. I mean, it was fantastic. And the other thing it did, because Sid was on the camcorder, we took camcorders with us, but the third time he um, he leaded the fish, which was very close to the back of the boat, she jumped out of the water, and I thought it was coming in the boat, and Sid luckily got it all on camcorder. I mean, this thing was huge. I don't know, it was probably nine or ten foot long, and it was fantastic. So there I was in Panama the first day. Although it was the only fish we caught that day, that didn't matter. I mean, it was fish of a lifetime. So yeah, I'd done the Marlin Royal Slam, and little did I know there was another American guy, although he didn't do it the first day, there was another American guy that actually did it, and we were both presented with a, a thing from the Tropic Star Lodge, all printed out, very nicely done, of our achievement. So uh, that was nice, but uh, as I said, it was just fantastic. And what we ended up, I think we had nine Marlin, I think we had five blue and four black, and the smallest of which was £300. So it was our first introduction, really, to big marlin. I mean, Sid, he had a beautiful £500 blue marlin, which was his biggest fish of his life. And then by then, I mean, we were really full of adrenaline. I mean, it, oh, I can remember going to bed, and I just couldn't sleep. I was so high, so up, I just couldn't sleep. I just laid tossing and turning, it was just rattling around my head all the time. I've never experienced anything like it. And as you do, you celebrated in a bit more style than perhaps you'd anticipated. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm glad you reminded me of that. That night um, at the dinner, we decided we'll go for a bottle of champagne. So we ordered a bottle of champagne. It wasn't all-inclusive. You had to pay for the drinks, but the food and all that was in the price. But ordered a bottle of champagne. It wasn't until the end of the week I found out that the bottle of champagne was £300. I mean, that did take the, the wind out of my sails a bit, but uh, I didn't begrudge it, really, because I, I'll never forget that as long as I live that fish. That was the fish of my lifetime, without doubt. But that week, uh, there wasn't one person at the whole party didn't get marlin. The previous week, I think they broke their week record, six days fishing. I think it was 96 marlin they caught, and I think that particular week, we ended up with about mid-70s, maybe nearly 80. But uh, what a place. So, yeah, that, I did that then, and... Um, by then, I mean, obviously you can realise, I mean, it, I was really into it all then. I mean, we was checking places, different places, going for other things. The other thing we caught out in Venezuela was our first introduction, a big yellowfin tuna. One particular day, we funnily enough, we was out on one of the smaller boats of the six that we was using, boated a 250-pound yellowfin tuna, which we couldn't believe the size of it. It was huge, absolutely huge. Unfortunately, I mean, they all tuna caught, they're killed. I mean, they're not wasted. I mean, they're worth lots of money. They're bunts for the boat. I mean, that's part of their life, so you don't argue with that. As long as they don't kill the billfish, I can live with them killing the tuna. About two days later, we had another tuna take. We were fishing with two rods for the tuna. They, they knew when the tuna were about, so they put 130-pound class gear out, which is heavy. It is a bit OTT, but they, as far as they're concerned, if you walk a tuna, they want to see it boated. That's their attitude. Anyway, we had two rods out, and luckily it was my turn on the rod, and I boated one of 190 pound. So we got one each, so we had two rods out again, and within a quarter of an hour, my rod went off again. And Sid was in the loo, so I had to take the rod, and back to back, I had another tuna of 250 pounds, so I had two tuna back to back. It meant I was fighting about an hour and a half of two tuna, 190 and 250. And I can remember when I got out of the chair, obviously Sid had finished his loo by then and come out and I said to him, I said, I don't want any more of them things, you can have the rest of them. They do beat you up. Beaten up maybe, but certainly never deterred. As I said, Essex boys, I mean, that, we still class to that. 
Dave and I are still going out to Mauritius every year. Dave hasn't missed a year. I've missed a couple because I've been to other places. But we still go out there. Unfortunately, the Marlin World Cup isn't going now through lack of interest, basically. The teams just dropped out and they just weren't getting enough. But we fish now the local one, which is the South Indian Ocean Billfish Competition, which is run by Le Mans Anglers. There's still about 18 to 20 teams going it. I think last year there was 10 different countries fishing it. It's still a big event. There's big prizes to be had. Dave and I have both over the years, we've won the individual on it. The Essex boys teams has won the South Indian Ocean as well. And as I say, we've won top angler. So the team Essex boys, it means a lot, without a doubt, going out there. We've got the T-shirts. I've got dozens of T-shirts, loads of hats. That's another lovely thing Dave does. He gets about 50 hats when we go out there with Essex boys, different colours each year. And when we go down, all the young lads and little kids and all that, we go round on the beach and we're giving them all a hat. And it's lovely to see. We go back other times. We've even seen photographs of other boats fishing with, you know, different people on. And they're blow and behold, as a, one of the deckhands have got an Essex boys hat on. Which, so it's great. I, we love all that. And that's all part of it. I mean, it's so, we've had, we have so much fun out there. And that's what it's all about. I'm so proud of it. Two years ago, I went, well, my wife, I don't know if she'll ever forgive me. I've never had a tattoo on my body. And I said to my wife, I've been watching it on the TV, and I said to my wife, do you mind if I have a tattoo? And she said, well, long as it's not a big and it's your body, you do what you like with it. So I went and had a tattoo, and I've had my whole back tattooed. And basically the tattoo comprises of a marlin exploding out of the water, which is a beautiful fish. And across my shoulders, I've got Essex boys. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm an Essex boy for the rest of my life, and I will take that name to my grave. Now that's loyalty. But if you're proud of what you've achieved, then why not? I wish that I had sufficient reason to be doing something similar. But the way things are going these days, the tattoo artists had better start stocking up on dogfish transfers. Perish the thought. So once again, many thanks to Paul Maris for giving us this guided tour through the world of billfish. 